Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So a few weeks ago, a few classes ago, um, I made mention to wasting time. And the reference was wasting time within Dhamma practice, but I think it, I didn't explain it well. Um, and Michael sent me a, a very good email, and a small part of it was in reference to that. Um, so and the, the best example I can give is I spent many, many years... Um, trying feverishly to reach the bottom of a vodka bottle. And I did it many, many times. I actually achieved my goal, uh, among other substances. And so, in a practical way, you could say that all of that was a waste of time. And it was. And in the physical world, that's it, you know, doing that is, is a waste of time. I wasn't doing anything else of any value. But in terms of the Dhamma, it wasn't a waste of time. It was simply what I did in my life. And to see that any other way is... A subtle aspect of self-loathing and, and harsh judgments. Uh, in fact, I, I still work with a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, and one of the big hurdles that you have to get over is hating yourself for what you've done. You can't recover if you don't do that. A little bit of an aside there. Um, but if I if I decided that part of my dhamma practice was getting blasted every night, that's a waste of time within the framework of the dhamma. And really, the reference is more to Having uh, developing other practices either in addition to the, the Buddhist Dhamma or instead of. And so I spent many, many years um, studying with some of the foremost Buddhist teachers of our time and, and some not so famous, and um, none of them actually taught what the Buddha taught. As far as, and, and that wasn't a waste of time, it was simply what I did. But in reference to the Dhamma, that was a waste of time because I didn't learn anything about the Dhamma. It was time that would be better spent actually practicing the Dhamma. And I've said often, I don't know if I've said it here, but I've said it to other people, uh, I think my teachers, um, that I wish, some, I wish I had come across me, meaning the way the Dhamma is presented here, uh, because I would have saved myself a lot of time. In other words, in Dhamma practice, I wouldn't have been wasting time. And just to clarify too, the, the, the words that I'm using are not exactly the Buddha's words. The Buddha never said he waste, we wasted time the words that is usually translated towards that is, is presented often as unskillful. So for me to come here and teach you that we need to bow a thousand times would be a waste of your time and it would be unskillful as a Dhamma teacher to teach that, even though millions of modern Buddhists would say that's what you do, or chanting, etc., etc., all the other <clears> things. Um, and so it's only in that context that we should see or consider wasting time or unskillful Dhamma practices. Our lives are not wasted in any way, except, as I, the way I see it now, except I don't practice the Dhamma. That, to me, that's a wasted life. But not everyone's going to come to the Dhamma anyway and have the opportunity to waste their life. Are you, are you following me? Mm -hmm. In the context of the Dhamma, if we practice something else or diminish the Dhamma in any way, we're wasting our times as wise Dhamma practitioners. So I hope that brings some clarity. It also, it also points to the, the Buddhist um, 
exhortation to speak only of the Dhamma when yeah. you gather this sangha. Yeah, one of one of the the, um, the 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 main rules of the sangha that the Buddha would often emphasize is when you're gathered as a sangha, you speak only of the Dhamma, uh, and that doesn't mean you don't reference other things. It, you you might reference as the Buddha did often to point out what would be unskillful or a waste of time. You don't bring that practice into the Dhamma. And anytime we do that, we we really it's not it's not a matter of degrees with the Dhamma. The Dhamma can only be developed in its pure form. In other words, if I'm really fond of uh, doing a thousand bows before I meditate and I do all the rest of the Eightfold Path, I'm missing the point. That's a, that's a self-referential view, though very subtle. And so it, it, that act diminishes the entire Dhamma. And that's all the Buddha said, and that's all that we're teaching here. We practice the Dhamma here, and anything else as in reference to the Dhamma would be un, unskillful. Okay. Thank you, Rob. Uh, we're at, I think this is week 13, uh, the chapter is called the Atavaga, and it follows nicely. Um, and you'll see that the, the, this is probably one of the most practical teachings, although they're all very practical. But it points to what, what is the point of the Dhamma. Is it's the ultimate aspect of self-care. And it follows the, nicely in this progression of chapters. Uh, a few weeks ago, we studied the Dandavaga, Abandoned Violence, and I would encourage, if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to listen to that. Last week was Jaravaga, and both of those point to um, the type of mindfulness that we have. One is towards the, uh, the hurtful aspects of a lack of mindfulness, and the Jaravaga teaches the benefits of right mindfulness, holding the Dhamma uh, through that right mindfulness. And this, this now follows with Guess what you get out of that? You get authentic self-care. And again, remember, these are words that the Buddha spoke 2,600 years ago and how relevant they are today, the Atavaga. If one truly cares for themselves, they will diligently practice restraint. And we hear that, you hear me mention it and through the Buddha's Dhamma, that's a key to the Dhamma. And how do we practice restraint? Well, we can't. I can't practice restraint for yesterday's vodka bottle that I drowned myself in. Foolish, it can't be done, can it? And I can't really practice restraint right now for, and I'm using just a, an extreme example. I haven't had a drink in 40 years. And I can't, I can't practice restraint for tomorrow. The only way that I can practice restraint is right here and right now. So somebody puts a glass of vodka in front of me, again, just using this, this as an example, the restraint would be no. And not no, it's even beyond the fact that I know I can't successfully drink. I don't drink because I don't want to lose my mind. And as soon as I take that drink or that drug or anything else, I've lost my mind, even in that moment. And again, bringing it back to the Dhamma, if I find myself acting out in any hurtful way, thought, word, and deed, that's where I practice restraint. It's in the moment. The, the Dhamma is practiced right here and right now in life as life occurs. There is no Dhamma in the past and there can be no Dhamma in the future. That's all speculation. It's right here and right now. I'm going to read that again, just the introduction. If one truly cares for themselves, they will diligently practice restraint. The wise disciple is always mindful of thoughts, words, and deeds. That's the essence of right mindfulness. Not mindful of things that have nothing to do with the Dhamma. Again, bringing it back to, to that authentic Dhamma practice. The wise disciple avoids reproach and understands the Dhamma before they instruct others. <clears throat> To me, again, that's one of the most powerful lines I've ever read. And it, when I read this quite a while ago, it helped me focus on 
how important it is that if I'm going to be teaching the Dhamma, I better know it first. And our the teachers that we, that have joined our uh, or developed over the years are so successful as teachers because they learned the Dhamma first before they decided they could teach others. That's so important. Um, I mentioned earlier all the different modern Buddhist practices that I had, and I wish just one of them had actually learned the Dhamma before they instructed me. Because all those years, and it was quite a few years, and, 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 and I'm not going to mention the centers again, but some of the most famous Eastern centers and a few around here and there, I never, ever, ever heard an explanation of dependent origination for noble truths or the Eightfold Path, ever. The essence of the Buddha's Dhamma. And again, I'm not, I'm not dishing, dissing these people. They simply couldn't teach the Dhamma. They couldn't instruct others because they didn't learn it. And it's, how could you? I can't, can't teach you how to change the oil in your car unless I first learned how to do it, could I? Same thing. And the, the beyond reproach part of this of this stanza is uh, that you should practice it. Yes. You have, you, you, and and how, how else do you know if you have it? You practice it. But also, and this doesn't this, this doesn't mean that you, you do this on your own. One of the most important aspects that the Buddha taught is to be part of a well-focused, well-informed Sangha, like we have right here. And look at the example, again, of our, of our four teachers. They didn't know any Dhamma before they came here, and each one of them had different challenges in developing the Dhamma. Ram had some views that he had developed that are very difficult to, to let go of, and I know that because that was my experience. Jen had a little bit different take on it. Kevin, even a little bit more different than that from where he began and Matt the same way. But they all developed a Dhamma and now have become very skillful teachers beyond reproach. Yes, David. And doesn't it go back to your original opening statement about wasted? You mm -hmm. can call it appropriate or you can yes. call it skillful. But it's if you're not practicing it as the Buddha meant it to be, it's not appropriate and it is a waste. And uh, people get caught up in the like harsh words, but it simply is unskillful. And what's the point of pursuing it if you're not doing it exactly as it's spelled out? Yeah, thank you. What is the point? You, I mean, it, it it would be the same as going bowling on Thursday night and expecting that to deliver something more than just good exercise <clears throat> and social interaction. And that's what I experienced. In, in, before I came to the Buddha's Dhamma. It really was just all distraction. There was, there was nothing there. Uh, as far as Dhamma practice, and I got to say, I, I, I enjoyed myself mostly, and I met some wonderful people, uh, developed some true friendships with, uh, you know, especially when one teacher always comes to mind who's local but world-renowned. Uh, we became great friends. He's one of the most funniest and loving men I've ever met. Um, some of you know who I'm talking about, but I don't need to mention his name. But he couldn't teach me the Dhamma. He couldn't teach it because he didn't know it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> let me continue. The Buddha's words. The wise disciple acts as they teach others to act. We're examples. You hear me say this all the The reason why the Buddha was so successful was because he didn't have the, the, the loudest voice of his time. He was a living example moment by moment of the Dhamma. When people saw him, they couldn't understand what was different about him, but they knew something was, and they knew that this guy had something to teach them by his own example, by his own peaceful presence. 
The wise disciple controls themselves. Self-control is indeed difficult. The wise disciple protects themselves. Who else could do so? Two such important lines. Who else can do so? Who else could protect my mind from greed, aversion, and deluded thinking? And also, look, 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 notice the power in that. That's true power. I'm not giving up my power to a fabrication, to a speculation, or to someone else who, knows, who does not know anything about the Dhamma. The only thing a, a Dhamma teacher can teach, if they're not going to waste your time, be unskillful, is the Dhamma. And then be an example of it. Fully controlled, the wise disciple achieves what is difficult to, to achieve. Fully controlled, <clears throat> established in wise restraint. It's the, it's the essence of self-care, isn't it? The suffering a fool does by themselves, from themselves, and produced by themselves, grinds themselves down as a diamond grinds a lesser stone. We're the cause of our distress. We're the cause of our own dukkha. And in the context of the Buddha's Dhamma, it's because of ignorance root, ignorance of four noble truths that leads to fabrications, that leads to, as you conclude, dependent origination to this whole mass of suffering. Just a single creeper strangles a tree. The depraved fool harms themselves as an enemy would. As an enemy would. That's the essence of self-loathing, isn't it? We do it to ourselves. We have no... There's no... There's no reason to complain about how we feel about ourselves or the world. Because we're the ones that are making those conditions that we think warrant a complaint. It's in our own minds. Going back to the Dandavaga, abandoned violence, it's conflict within our own minds that we must recognize and abandon if we really hope to end conflict in the world or else it just keeps regurgitating itself, doesn't it? Whether it's in individuals or in groups or now in, you could say, in half the country's population. Constantly regurgitating the effects of their ignorance and supported by the group ignorance now. And imagine if, if we would just practice, and I'm not talking about Dhamma practice, if people would just practice 5% restraint, it would be a completely different world, wouldn't it? Still be kind of rough, but the Buddha continues: hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds are easy to do. Difficult is to remaining harmless and helpful. Those with fabricated views who scorn the Dhamma and the teachers of the Dhamma, this fool produces their own destruction. The fool does harm, the fool is defiled. The wise disciple abandons hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds and makes them makes themselves pure. It's not magic. It's not something bestowed on me because I prayed to the, the right God or I have the right lineage. I make myself pure. Purity and impurity depend on oneself and no one can purify another. Another powerful line. It, it lays lie... Uh, it lays, which I can't think of the phrase. Lays. What is it? I say lays. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
to this whole notion of mind-to-mind -mind transmission. And I spent many years in that. When the idea is that your teacher is so evolved <clears throat> mentally that they can magically transfer the Dhamma to you without you doing much of anything else except sitting at their feet. How ridiculous is that? I mean, I, I never could buy that one, <laughs> even though I kind of went along with it. It's up to me to purify my mind. And how would you know what's in my mind that needs to be purified? And how do I know what needs to be purified? Through jhana meditation in the framework of the entire Eightfold Path. That's why it's there. To recognize and abandon all manifestations of ignorance within me. Not, with that, not out in the world, within me. Because again, when I end conflict within myself, at least I'm no longer contributing to the conflict in the world. And you hear me say this often, if I truly care about humanity <clears throat> as a whole, and I do... I'll take to the Dhamma like my hair is on fire. That's the most loving act I can take for myself and for all other sentient beings. It's to truly awaken, not, not become woke, to truly awaken. Do not neglect one's own welfare for the sake of another. Sounds selfish, doesn't it? But it goes right back to ending conflict within me first before I can hope to end conflict in the world. And again, it's really by my example that I'll do that and by not contributing to the stress and suffering that's already present in the world. I've got to go back to the beginning. Do not, do, not, do not neglect one's own welfare for the sake of another, however enticing. The Buddha acknowledges that, that falling into this salvific mentality, I, can, I know enough that I can save you or save the world. That's what he's referring to. And that's why you've heard me say over and over and over again, the Buddha never saw himself as a savior and he never hoped to teach a salvific religion. He wanted to, te to teach people how to be a human being and have a human life while you have the chance to do it. That's all. But that's everything, isn't it, as a human being, to actually have a human life, to be an awakened human being. And no matter how much time I have yet left, it doesn't matter if I'm five years old or 65. I'm so fortunate to have come to the Dhamma and to live the last couple of years Awaken and understand what's going on. To be free of conflict within my own mind, except when I think about Google and Facebook. <laughs> John? Yes, please. Could you just read that line once more I, I, about, about uh, bestowing, you know, awakening on someone else? Purifying your own mind. Purify, yes. Yes. The wise disciple abandons hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds and makes themselves pure. Purity and impurity depend on oneself and no one can purify another. Thank wow. you for asking me to do it. I'm going to that, just continue. Isn't that something? It's so prevalent in the world's religions to be purified by another. In all the world's religions, yes. including yes. one that it shouldn't be right. in Buddhism. All of Buddha, but the, the, there's an article on the website that you know, it, it's, it's called Salvation Free Buddhism, and it's there for a reason. Because there, there's no salvation here that the Buddha taught. There's only awakening. There's only becoming an authentic human being, which is what he was. That, that's what we example as wise Dhamma <laughs> practitioners. It also and, sort of points toward, a, it's easy to see your problem. Oh, yeah. Your problem, mm -hmm. your problem but not mm -hmm. take the time and understand... Take care of yourself. Right. Yep. It, it's amazing how... Um, Most prevalent destruction. It, it, it really is surprising how, how wrong the world was. And almost all the people in the world, especially the people closest to me, 
because they weren't acting. And I was right all the time. I was right. I was never wrong until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma and realized I was wrong about everything, about every one of my assumptions. I was wrong. But because I was, I was developing the Eightfold Path as it was intended, I didn't have to beat myself up. I could recognize that in a very gentle way and know that it was just a fabrication. It was like foam on the ocean. When you understand that, it's gone. It literally is gone. But if I decide that you know I'm stupid or I'm bad or how could I ever act with blah, 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 that's a waste of time within Dhamma practice. The Buddha continues, Do not neglect one's own welfare for the sake of another, however enticing. Knowing clearly one's own welfare first, that the wise disciple can now be intent on calm. Knowing clearly one's own welfare first, take to the Dhamma and awaken first. The wise disciple can now be intent on calm. End of the chapter. What's the point of the Dhamma? It's that last line. I am intent on maintaining or developing and maintaining a calm and peaceful mind. When the Buddha describes awakening, human awakening, he doesn't describe it in magical or mystical terms. He doesn't talk about achieving some kind of non-physical realm or the favor of some diva or god or avalokiteshvara. The only way he ever described an awakened human being was with that one word, calm or peaceful. And isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? The, the, the reason why we grasp after all things, including, including cheap <coughs> vodka or, or compulsively bowling on Thursday night or fabricated religions or fabricated ideas is because our minds aren't calm. And we're hoping that these activities will bring a measure of calm. So when we go bowling on Thursday night, we might feel calm, but really what we are is we're just distracted from our own minds. When I suck down a bottle of vodka... I might feel calm for a moment until I wake up the next day, but I've only distracted myself from my, my own mind. When I engage in other practices, a thousand vows, chanting endlessly, praying to what? Praying to what? I'm only distracting myself. And so it might, in the moment, it might feel like I've resolved something, but the inner ignorance is still present because I've done nothing to address it. And that's what the Buddha is teaching. End ignorance of four noble truths and your mind will remain calm and peaceful. That's an awakened human being. That's truly right view and right mindfulness. So, thank you. Um, let's go online first. And uh, Josh, how are you this morning? Good, John. And uh, I'm still... Uh, Thinking about the the, the Sutta, I I think I'm beginning to realize it that, that why why that you, you almost have to become a, a monk <laughs> to uh, really practice the Dhamma. Uh, life is just full of distractions, yeah. and. Uh, uh, my life is full of uh, uh, clinging and grasping and all kinds of things that I that are kind of my default. I, I, not that I want them to be there, but that's just uh, the way they are. I, I uh, 
just don't have the presence of mind to to come back and 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 uh, become restrained and and uh, calm uh, as often as I would want to, but I'm better than I used to be. I think. Yeah. <clears throat> and but that's uh, that's what I have today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the point, Josh. It's it's you and you and to recognize that you are much more restrained now than you were a few months ago. That's Dharma practice. It, and again, it's not the, the, the there's a goal to Dharma practice, and that's to fully awaken. But along the way, we recognize the benefits, and 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 that's enough. That's enough for right now. You mentioned you almost have to become a monk. Um, you don't have to become a monk, but it does make it a lot easier. So the Buddha, I mentioned this to Michael too. The Buddha left the palace grounds um, in order to seek his own awakening. And he would often refer to his life. Now, he was, he was one of the most wealthiest people in that part of India at the time and probably in the world. And he, he referred to that time of his life as a confining place. A confining, and it's because he was confined by his own sensual desire and all the things that were around him. So he had to leave that. And he, he calls that leaving the world behind. And entering into this world of wise restraint. But it doesn't mean that everyone has to do that. There's many stories. Um, Anatha Pandika comes to mind who was a wealthy benefactor. In fact, we probably wouldn't have modern Buddhism. We probably wouldn't have the, the preservation of Buddhism today from the Buddha's time if it wasn't for people like Anatha Pandika who helped support the Buddha during his uh, dispensation. But he also awakened being continuing to be involved in the business of the day. He was a very wealthy businessman. Um, so it's not impossible, but I've always said it's much easier to awaken uh, if you can become a monk, but you don't have to. And again, the goal, the goal is to awaken, but what's most important is the quality of my mind right now. And in this moment, if I can practice wise restraint when I know that I need to, that's Dhamma practice. And you're doing it, my friend. So thanks for joining this morning. Tom, good to see you. Hello, John. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I think first of all, um, yeah, just very quickly, I um, just, uh, I guess, express my 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 gratitude for being able to join this sangha. And I, you know, when I sometimes stop and reflect, I realize it's really, really um, had a big influence on me and how I um, how I engage with the Dharma and how it helps me engage with life. Uh, just like what Josh was saying it's still there's so much clinging and pulling here there and everywhere but there's a base upon which i can kind of i feel a bit more grounded nowadays yeah. and i can come back to yeah. um not anywhere near as much as i would like but still a lot more than i than i used to um so that's been really like uh, i don't want to sort of sound like but it's been really life-changing for yeah. me actually but not i don't want to sort of over um, I don't know. Well, anyway, you, you, hopefully you get what I mean. I don't want to yeah. sort of overstate it. But, it is life changing. Really it should influence be. me in a in a positive way. Um, so yeah, thank you to the to you, John, and the, the sangha, mm -hmm. and uh, obviously the teachings of uh, of the Buddha yeah. himself. Um, but but I I just had a I I had a two questions, if I may. I'll Please. try and keep them really quick. No rush. Um, the first one is. Um, 
uh, one of the lines you said was, and I may slightly be misquoting it, so do correct me, but uh, take to the Dharma uh, and then and then and teach, or you know, don't teach without taking to the Dharma, something yeah. along those lines. Mm -hmm. And so my question for you is that having, like, I feel like I have a better grasp of the Dharma now than mm -hmm. certainly than I did, let's say, six months ago or a year ago. Um, Obviously, I still a long way to go, but I've got a better grasp now. But I also know on the practicing side that I still struggle, um, you know, every single day, right, with actually following through on what I know to be true. Yeah. So to what extent should that influence how I, you know, do I, do I, do I still share the Dharma? Do I still... Um, teach i mean not in a way that you teach but i mean is it is it or or is that being a bit hypocritical or is irresponsible of me to to teach something that i'm not practicing anywhere near as much as i would i would like to wow thank you tom it's a it's a, it's a very important question especially in, in light of today's sutta um and you're you're right to evaluate yourself in that way that it, your your practice will show you when you're ready to teach and also recognizing that Dhamma practice shouldn't be 24 seven, but it should be a 24 seven commitment, meaning that we're mindful of, of the Dhamma. Um, as far as there's a difference between teaching others in a formal setting and explaining people what you know of the Dhamma. And I think if you keep it in that framework that the Dhamma is just this thing, it's what the Buddha actually taught and it's not, what most people would think it is. It's, it's just this. You'll do fine. And I think we've talked a little bit about you maybe starting your own group there. Um, and so we can have some conversations on that. And I would be happy to, to check you where you are. Not, not that you need me to authorize you to teach. I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. But if you, want my, if, if, you, if you want my understanding on that, I'd be happy to give it to you. Um, the most important thing that I would say is if you're, if you do want to actually teach in any kind of formal way, teach, like do what we do here. We only teach from a sutta. You'll very, very rarely, I think two or three times in, in my teaching career, I, I've taught over a thousand classes now. I was thinking about that the other night. I can't believe it. Um, only two or three times did I teach something that wasn't rooted in a sutta, meaning teaching like we did here, teaching a sutta and commenting on it. Um, going out and uh, or, or teaching teaching off the cuff what you think it is can often lead to things that are confusing to others and themselves, and it doesn't reinforce the importance of the Buddha's words. So I'm not teaching Haspalism here. I'm teaching the Buddha's words as best as I can and through my knowledge. Uh, and I put the time in, but um, it doesn't take a lifetime to really understand the Dhamma either. It takes some diligent practice. Uh, we have four new teachers um, that have been coming around for a few years, and we went through a, a formal teacher training, but they're fully qualified to instruct others. And I would say that you're, you're moving rather quickly there if you're not there already. So in, in the, there's no implication that you must be a fully awakened Dhamma practitioner before you can teach. Uh, that, that even um, Ananda is a good example. Ananda was a Buddhist cousin and his his attendant for 
more than half of his life. I mean, he was there every day, every moment of the Buddha's <clears throat> life. Uh, and Ananda didn't awaken until a month after the Buddha passed. Yet he was, a, he was an important teacher of the Dhamma. Uh, and the Buddha would often refer people to Ananda for, for certain subjects. So don't, and I hope I didn't imply that. It doesn't mean we have to be fully awakened Buddhas in order to teach. We have to have a thorough grounding. And I, I believe you do. I don't remember. Did you take the Truth of Happiness course? Yeah, I'm taking it. I'm taking. I'm taking oh, it now. Okay, and, yeah. and really, by the by, the time you're done with that, and we'll have a couple of conversations along the sure. way, then um, you're you're more or less ready to to start teaching a sangha there, and and we've talked about that. I'm whatever I can do to support yeah. that. Um, yeah. But you're also show a, a lot of insight and a lot of restraint in questioning. Are you ready? That's important too. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Thanks, John. We, really appreciate it. Was that both of your questions? I only remembered one. Uh, no, but I, I won't. I'll ask my next question next week because I don't. Okay. I don't want to take too much time. Give everyone else a chance to comment as well. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad you joined us this morning. Thanks, John. Good morning, Mary. Hi, John. Hey. How are you? Good. I haven't. I'm going to see. I haven't seen you in a while. That's Mary. <laughs> Hi. Still the same. <laughs> Just longer hair. Yeah. Um, this this um this sutra I think really uh, um lays over last week's sutra very nicely. So as I don't know if it's building blocks or or um or what, but I think um you know I I remember when you first started. I think I do when you first started teaching series. And um, I really learn a lot from that because they seem to be well um, orchestrated and um, in building blocks. So it's very helpful, um, you know, for all of us to benefit and hear um, the messaging properly. Um, you know, I was listening to what Josh was saying and, um, you know, I would just say that you know, that's what we're all dealing with. You know, we all come to the table with our own clinging and craving. And when we're first starting, we always think that we're the only one that has this crazy monkey mind, right? And yeah. it's really what we all have. And we have to unlearn so many behaviors um, that we learn to be the right ones um, because of our culture or upbringing or faith yeah. or whatever. And this is so helpful because it's so gentle and the expectations are so clear. It's so practical. Even your explanation of what waste of your time means is that important for people to understand, to not, when they feel sensitive to the words being used, that's usually our own stuff coming up. Yeah. And it's important to understand it in the context, which is, any one of us would come to the same conclusion, oh yeah, I was wasting my time over there when I was doing that thing, which is different than yep. what I'm doing now, which is um, bringing me great peace of mind. Um, it's not, and then it's in the context of be gentle with yourself. It wasn't a waste of your life or anything like that, but it's important when you 
I do in everything, or at least it's very helpful to me to see what it is and what it isn't, right? Yeah. So what it is is what you're experiencing right now in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, and, you know, you were saying it doesn't exist in the future or the past, and if you look at what you were doing before, that just wasn't it. Yeah. And now you're here. So as much as you need to say that was a waste of time, you can also stop and say, and this isn't. And this is, you know, right where I need to be, which reflects, you know, you being in the presence of the Dhamma. So um, that was probably broader context than just this student, but I think they just really build on each other very nicely from last week and this weekend. And always, I appreciate everyone's comments. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Mary. Well, that was well said. And, and the, the Dhammapada is just like when you... When you <clears throat> I restored it, I think, to its original intent instead of being inverse. And it is very useful that way, isn't it? And this is this is the the middle class. This is a 13th of 26 classes. And it, even the positioning of this particular chapter is interesting. It's all about self-care. It's all about and so as you as we progress through the rest of this, you'll see how the understanding that I'm doing this for my own well-being will now build to where it culminates. In the, in, the, in the last class. And just, just to get back to that idea of waste of time, I, I have a little bit better example that, that people that didn't spend their lives in a, a vodka bottle <laughs> might relate to better. Um, in my, uh, uh, and I, by the way, I, I quit drinking and drugging when I was 26. Um, I spent many, many years in a, in a particular lineage um, doing seven and 10 day sashins. A sashin is um, a strict only meditation practice and you meditate for 14 to 16 hours a day with walking meditation breaks uh, typically and sometimes a break for lunch, sometimes not. And it's just brutal. And in relation to the Dhamma, that was a complete waste of time. It brought me nowhere towards understanding the Buddha taught. It was unskillful. It was inappropriate. But it wasn't a waste. Again, as I said, it wasn't a waste of time in the overarching context of my life, because it's simply what I did. Again, there was no, there was no benefit or demerit. It would be just the same as if I went bowling on Thursday night and expected that to bring bring me anything other than recreation and distraction. So, thank you, Mary. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Um, wonderful sutta, um, and it's good that we we spend time. Um, Looking at how how to care for ourselves uh, and 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 others, uh, I, I, I started my life uh, in college as as a psych major, and um, wanting to getting to get into that part of, of life where you care for others, you know, in, yeah. the, in the mental sense, and uh, it didn't take me long to realize that um, that wasn't going anywhere. Because, you know, what in, on earth did I have to teach those people? I was, you know, I, <coughs> pretty clear that I, I was well and, and screwed up. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had no authority to tell anybody to what they were going to have to do with their lives, you know, with their problems. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of set me on, on my, my way to... Um, trying to find some 
some basis for, for teaching others. And, and it's really not until I, I came here and, and really started getting engaged in, in the Dharma that I finally had something, you know, after, you know, how, how old was I? Uh, 22. You know, I gave that part up 22 years ago. And now at 71, I am finally ready to say, yeah, I can actually care for others. Yeah. It, it, it is now within my, my grasp to, to do that. Um, and it's, it's a strange thing to realize that, uh, you know, you can spend, not, not that, and again, not that the, what was in between was wasted. It got me here yeah. somehow. Um, and I got to see things that didn't work, so I could abandon them. Um, so... Um, what I wrote down after this, after reading this for a few times, um, <clears throat> is that taking to the Dharma wholeheartedly is an act of self-care. Yes. And exemplifying and teaching the Dharma to those who ask for it is the best way to show care for others. Yeah. That's what I got out of it. And that's, I mean, that's just it. The... You know, many people have resistance, especially at, at the beginning of just sitting, just engaging in a jhana practice. But when you think about the, the, the one thing I can do that is most effective in taking care of myself is to get up every morning at 5 o'clock and sit for a half hour and do it again about 12 hours later. Because that keeps me focused and allows me to hold in mind the entire Eightfold Path. The most loving thing I can do, the most loving thing anybody can do as a wise Dhamma practitioner is to live in the Dhamma, develop the Dhamma. Thank you, Ralph. Morning, Jen. Good morning. Um, I have a question that I'm, I'm not sure if I want to ask it. So I'm, but I'm going to go for it. Um, good. That's good. So, practicing or meditating, sorry, meditating for 12 to 14 hours a day in, within, a, within a context that's not the Dhamma is a waste of time. In relation to the Dhamma. In relation to the Dhamma. Yes. What about meditating 14 hours a day as a Dhamma practitioner? Wow. Now that's not, I mean... I wish you wouldn't ask that question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> not that you're saying that's what has to happen, but I'm just... Because did, did the it's Buddha... A, I mean, he meditated for, like, overnight and... Right. I, I, I mean, am I... In, am in, I in right? Or no? You, you, yes, and, and you, I, I, I believe that you're misinterpreting what they're saying. Okay, okay. That there, there's, there's nothing that says... I can't remember the name of the sutta right now, where he, he meets uh, Pukasati. Um, and they talk about meditating. But there, there's not, I, I've never come across anywhere where a time frame for meditation was taught by the Buddha. In other words, you should meditate. Okay. So there's, there's anecdotes like that. But I think what's more likely is that they, they meditated like 
we might do. It might have been for longer periods. It might have been for an hour or two. But it also may have been overnight. I don't think so. Again, there's no reference to the Buddha or anyone else meditating for very long periods of time. And I've, I've read and restored hundreds of suttas now. I would think that if, if a length of time was the, the, uh, the benchmark for meditation practice, it would have been mentioned. It would have been mentioned over and over yeah, again. Yeah. We've, had, we've had specific classes on suttas that mention jhana, and, and there's nowhere where the Buddha says you've got to meditate for 14 or 16 hours right, a day. Right. And I think one of the reasons why is because then that becomes the sole focus of your Dhamma practice, and you no longer even have the time to incorporate the Eightfold Path. Right. So the Buddha taught jhana meditation to develop concentration. It's ultimately up to each and every one of us to decide how much time we need mm-hmm. to put into that. Mm-hmm. What I found for myself, and really what I teach, is about a half hour twice a day, that twice a day is so important, is enough for me to develop the profound concentration I need to maintain the refined mindfulness to hold in mind the Eightfold Path. So it's such an important question because if the we it's it's very subtle, but we could easily fall into the idea that I'm just not getting enough. Out, if I would just do this for a couple hours, well, you're missing the point because if you if you if you get to that point that more is better, it's likely that what you're doing isn't true jhana practice. It's something else. And so look at it. Not that jhana practice is difficult to develop. It's very, very simple. But often we'll bring other practices. I I think I mentioned uh, a few times here. I first started meditation with with, uh, transcendental meditation. You're given a mantra, secret mantra. Um, It's not so secret. And even many, many years into true jhana practice, every now and then I find myself reciting that mantra because it was so conditioned within me. But because it popped up into my mind, I didn't continue with it. I recognized it as just simply any other random thought, let it go, and came back to my breath. So the important thing is the integrity of jhana meditation within the broader framework. Length of time isn't all that significant, although yeah. as we develop the Dhamma, again, I advise people to start with very short periods of time, you've all heard that, and gradually build. So I would say with everybody that's here, I would hope that you're around 20 minutes or maybe a little bit more with the exception of Adam because he's, he, he's only been coming a few months. But, and if you are meditating for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, that's great. And I also should say, if you find that you like to meditate for an hour a day and the rest of your practice is developing, that's fine too. You know, there's, it's, a, it's a rather individual yeah. decision, but we should be working towards, I would say, using your teacher as an example, at about a half hour twice a day, I have found uh, to be most effective. That being said, every now and then, on a, a, a day like this, I might decide, you know, I just feel like sitting, and I'll go and I'll sit for two or three hours, just because I do it. But I don't see it as as some kind of advanced practice or anything. It's just, now, it's just pleasant. It, if you see it working for yourself, that's yeah. it. That's the point. Then yeah, that's I think it. If you if you don't, <clears throat> then don't. Yeah, and all those times I mentioned a few, all those times I spent in, in 14 and 16 hour sashins, the only benefit that I found there is that it came to an end. It was over because it really was brutal. And most of the people that I talked 
two afterwards that were honest about it. It's interesting. Most people didn't even want to talk about it. But the people at worst said basically the same thing. They, said, they didn't understand why they were doing this for so long. They don't, they don't see a benefit. And then usually we'll judge ourselves. That I guess I'm just not doing it right. And that's, that's often reinforced by the organization or the teacher. You, know? you just need to do more of it. Okay, well, this much didn't, <laughs> it doesn't, that never made any sense to me either. Great question, Jen. Was that your... Yeah, so, so yeah, what I'm hearing is that it needs to be, well, it, it, it is, you know, we are all human beings. We all have um, minds that have, there's certain, certain commonality within our minds that is going to dictate meditation, uh, consistent meditation being beneficial and and the, the, the small yes. little tweaks here and there is going to be an individual experience yes you need to kind of maybe meditate for a little bit longer meditate for, for not as long depending on who you are and yeah mm -hmm. yeah but have a consistent practice <clears throat> That's that's the point. It, it's consistency and the right method. Right. Uh, right. And that being said, it, it and I mentioned twice a day. If if you feel like you want to meditate three or four or ten times a day, some people. I mean, Ram, you mentioned a little while ago that mm -hmm. you know, and I I've done it too. That the middle of the day, I might just feel yeah. like I need to sit me for a few too. minutes, and, and so middle, I go ahead and yeah, do it. That really is huge for me. If I do yeah. it in the middle of the day, just for even three or four minutes, it it makes a big difference. Yeah. Michael. Uh, just on that, uh, the length of meditation, uh, I guess it really doesn't matter as long as it doesn't become an obsession. Yes. That's, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the right word. You know, we shouldn't be obsessed with anything in Dhamma practice. We should, we should be diligently practicing like the Buddha said here. But obsession is a self-referential view, isn't it? No, Wouldn't that be like grasping if you say, I have to meditate for 14 hours because mm -hmm. I want to become enlightened. And yeah. Now you're grasping yeah. towards... Well, you know what I realized right. afterwards? I mean, I mean, this is a few years after I stopped doing that, is I was meditating for 14 to 16 hours a day to, be, to get approval. Mm -hmm. Really. That's, that's, what, that's what the group that I wanted to be a part of were doing. That's what the teacher taught. I wanted his approval and I wanted the group's approval. Mm -hmm. Self-referential views. John, like, more thing on that. Please. <laughs> Uh, or if even you do, seems like it works for me a lot. If I say, Julia, I can't help you to clean the house today. I have to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, Julia should understand. I that. would understand that. That's, that's okay. Especially when you say, and you're going to go out into the woods and meditate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> See you later. You good, Jen? Yeah, yeah, that was good. Thank, Thank you. you. That was good. Yeah. Good morning, David. Good morning, John. I'm good, thank you. Glad you're here. Good morning, Adam. Good, morning, good to see you. I'm good as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Glad you're here. Fabulous. Good morning, Tim. Uh, good morning. Um, yeah, so self-care. Um, I found uh, within reading, reading this and that the common thread on this particular chapter as well as the Sita Vaga, the Puvaga, and the yeah. uh, Balvaga, where there was this well, is the concept of wise restraint. Yeah. Uh, this particular the the wise restraint in regard to the to the mind, I guess, was more 
looked at it the Sitavaga with mindfulness. Whereas as this one is re, is regarding to our action, thoughts, and emotions mm-hmm. and self care. Because if we if we have if we have those wrong thoughts and wrong actions and wrong emotions, well, that's not being that's not really caring for ourselves because now we're perpetuating ignorance and suffering. Um, I've said this before and, and I've kind of stuck on it, but it seems like the conflict in our own mind must be reconciled. And when I say reconciled, I mean that through the Dhamma. Yep. Okay. To end that conflict of oneself. And that conflict, to me, are those ideas that that was mentioned in the Arahant Bhaga of the things that are negative aspects of, of awakening. And that's that, that mm-hmm. are the hindrances, entanglements, and distractions, yeah. amongst other mm-hmm. things. And so I think I'm, I'm trying to figure out if this is, if I should use some, as this, as this chapter says, restraint in saying this, but <laughs> I think I take a more serious approach to the teaching aspect of this because. I think those are big deals, and I, and I think it's a marathon and not a sprint. And, and when it comes to the development of the Dhamma, especially with the self-care, and for me, I'm I'm very cautious to say anything regarding the Dhamma to others because I don't feel I'm there with that self-care at all yet. So I just say www.becomingbuddha.com <laughs> start with the chapter on jhana meditation because it's not that I'm loathing or, I'm, or I don't have the confidence. It's just that I can recognize agitation and I'm still at that process of stopping the reaction and stopping that cycle. <clears throat> so to comment to everybody, I it's just and it's just my introspective view. Others may feel differently. That's fine too. But I think that the teaching thing is it's not to be taken lightly oh. because of, because of the damage it can create. Not damage, but confusion. No, damage is the right word. Misleading people is damaging to them. And so, on the, and I think that that's what. I know that that was kind of what's going on here with the other body with the self-care, but, but the idea of that practicing restraint seems to be a, a, a something that's stated, stated a lot. And one thing I'd say to what Ram was saying was, and to what everybody was saying in the beginning, is that to me a teacher is a guide. So, I mean, I know that the teacher doesn't have to be an expert at the Dhamma, but just like a football coach isn't necessarily the best quarterback or the best wide receiver or the best defensive end, but they need to be a guide. So they need to have the fundamentals, the fundamentals of the Dhamma, like embedded um, and recognition of of when those fundamentals are challenged within a a structured Sangha. Um, Yes, and and so with that, the one thing I... um, yeah, so basically that's what I 
I got out of this chapter. Again, the chapters are very full of, but I found I found I found it really fascinating that it really this this restraint topic is 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 has been brought up on almost half of these chapters. Yeah. Right? Common theme of the Dhamma. Common theme of the Dhammapada. Yeah. Yeah. It's a common theme of the Dhamma. You know? Yeah. Um, you're again, Tim. You're you're expressing your own individual wise restraint. Which is as a, and you developed a dhamma enough to that that's that's authentic wise restraint. It's not something that's fabricated. You understand it. Um, there's there's two of uh, Sariputta and Moggallana came to the Buddha around the same time uh, and very quickly developed the dhamma to the point where they were acknowledged as awakened human beings. Sariputta throughout the rest of the Buddha's life, they both all three of them lived around the same time. The uh, same length of time, uh, Sariputta was a major teacher and is mentioned in a lot of suttas uh, as a teacher. Moggallana didn't like to teach, even though he was an awakened human being, and so the Buddha and he he preferred to live a solitary life. He didn't he didn't even interact with the sangha all that much, except when the Buddha would call on him for very specific teachings, and he would call Moggallana out of the forest and say, "I want you to teach this," but he was not a natural teacher, and so he didn't teach. And there's, you know, it wasn't right or wrong or lazy or anything else. It was just how it was. The Buddha recognized it as well, you know. So not just because we're Dharma practitioners doesn't mean we we have to go teach. Some of us will want to, and some of us won't. But that's fine, you know. That that's that's as it should be. But again, as Tim is emphasizing, and this sutta is emphasizing, you first have to learn the Dharma before you can teach it. I think that we we. We developed a pretty good teacher's training, wouldn't you? The two yeah. teachers here agree. Yeah. And even though you had a very good understanding of the Dhamma, you now understand more how to teach it, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the, the point. The insight know? for me, the insight series that we did that, that the last summer was, was really crucial because it, yeah. it got into so many really basic concepts of, of the Dhamma that, uh, that needed to be worked up. So for me, that was part of the, that was a big part of the training. But then, you know, uh, actually setting up a sutta and, 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 and teaching it even to your just fellow teachers, uh, that's an experience that, uh, that, that turns everything upside down. And, and yeah. you really get to see, you know, <clears throat> how you're doing with it and, and, and how it works. Yeah. It's a, and it's the best thing for your practice. There's, there's, no better way to weed out, you know, uncertainties and and yeah. uh, and and things you're fuzzy about, you know, until you have to teach it to people that know the Dharma equally well. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Once you're ready to teach and you do actually start teaching, you're going to learn a whole lot more about the Dharma, <laughs> not the other way around. Glad you're here, my friend. I'll see you soon. I'll see you Tuesday. We got a teacher's meeting on Tuesday? Uh, yeah, I'll be I think we do, yeah. Okay. Good morning, Michael. Hi, John. See you Hi, everybody. Well, yeah, I had about a half an hour more of talking. I'm just kidding. Be <laughs> <laughs> Michael. Be gentle with us. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, uh, my notes are a little scrambled, so I'm going to try to... Uh, somehow connect them as uh, I ramble on here for a moment.
Um, knowing clearly one's own welfare first, the disciple can now be intent on calm. I really like this because this brings us back to um, being harmless. Yeah. Being gentle and being harmless. And being harmless actually brings calmness, which leads to stillness. And when stillness is present, we are present. When, when our mind is still, it's united with the body, and we are present. And we are practicing the Dhamma at that point in time. In that, when we, again, the emphasis on harmless, and I like the idea of that because for some reason I've connected with it and it reminds me that in each and anything I do that I practice or I, I, I try to be harmless and I feel then that I'm practicing the Eightfold Path when I am harmless because my mind is united with my body and I'm recognizing my own ignorance. Yeah. If, if I'm not harmless to myself, then I'm not recognizing my own ignorance, and my own ignorance is taken away from the, from the quality of my mind. So with that, with this in place, or this understanding, being harmless with one another leads to the breaking down <coughs> of habitual thinking and puts an end to creating any karma and the unbinding process begins. That's what I got out of this. That, it, that's outstanding. Um, the, if you look at the, how the Eightfold Path is structured, the first two, right view and right intention, are known as the wisdom factors. The next three, right speech, action, and livelihood, are the virtuous factors, and they precede right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, the concentration factors. And, it, and it, the, the reason is, like the whole Dhamma, is very practical. If we are engaged in hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds, whether towards ourselves or others, and it's usually both, there's no way we can develop a common, peaceful mind through right meditation, is there? Again, it's just an entirely practical teaching. And if and I, 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 people that wonder why their meditation practice isn't bearing fruit, it's because they're not doing anything about their behavior. They expect that they could just sit, and all of a sudden, their ingrained conditioned behavior is somehow going to fall aside, and it, and it never does. That's why we end up with, with and I, I don't mean to get on a high horse, horse and blame people, but that's why we end up with very famous Buddhist teachers, well-known all over the world, that engage in sexual predation because they've never done the work. That's the only possible way. And I'm not going to name names, but there's not a modern lineage, modern Buddhist lineage, that doesn't have a sexual predator within its ranks, either in the past or presently. And it's often covered up. And again, I'm not getting on a high horse here. It's just as that example. There's no possible way that could happen to an authentic Dhamma practitioner because you would recognize and abandon all hurtful behavior, including some as egregious and obvious as that. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, friends, I'm sorry. I've, I've got to run as well. Good sorry. to see you, Adam. Nice to see you all. Bye. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Um, let's see what I have. I have notes scattered also. 
um, continued ignorance is not um, seeing things as they truly are. And ignorance is kind of like a self-deception, and it's a non-confrontation of accepting impermanence within ourselves and, and the world, and kind of making everything referential, you know, making everything our own. Um, so the, the disciple, as the Buddha says, the disciple protects themselves. How? Well, through self, by being practicing restraint at the sixth sense base and not um, being harmful to themselves by thoughts, words, and deeds. Um, I, I like that, yeah. what the Buddha said, because it makes sense to me. Um, because when, when your mind is bombarded with different stimuli that comes in and you're making everything be part of you, it's all you, it's this and that, and blah, 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 and this person is this or that, it's, it's not, you don't have a calm and peaceful mind. Yeah. You have no peace within you. Um, so I understand that makes very much sense. The other thing that I really liked about about this um, these passages in the Dhammapada was the, the part here where he says, um, do not neglect one's own welfare for the sake of another, however enticing. Yeah. Um, it made me think of, of the fact that you really can't save anyone because as soon as, if you're not saved, you're, if you're not working on yourself, and under, understanding yourself, you really can't extend the hand to help someone else because right. you'll get entangled in whatever yeah. whatever mesh they're entangled in, yeah. and it, it will bring you both down. And I always think of this. Um, I think of um, this is kind of like an analogy where being a lifeguard, <coughs> a person is thrashing, drowning in the, in the ocean. The lifeguard doesn't go and just try to go close to the person because the lifeguard knows that if they do approach the person, they get too close they're going to also drown. They're going to be pulled down into the ocean and drown. Two of them will drown. Yep. And so they know to uh, extend something to let the person hold on first and then, then they'll pull them in and save them. But it's, it's, it, it, shows, it shows that you can't really, this is how you can't really save anyone. If they're thrashing about right. and you put yourself in, in, in with the, within their, their scope, they will also pull you down. Especially if you're not in that calm and peaceful place yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what I got out of that, John. <laughs> that's that's well said. If I if if I want to save you, I'm lost. But what I can be is an example of how you can save yourself. Exactly. That's the Dharma. Yeah. Mm. Good morning, Becky. Good morning. <clears throat> I learned so much just sitting here listening and what I I don't even want to say learn, but what I, I really, really realized just this morning, believe it or not, is that self-care is fundamental. Yeah. That really the whole Dhamma is, is, is self-care. Yep. Yeah. And if you can, if you can take care of your own mind and your own self through your meditation and through your holding the Dhamma in mind, then you're, you're, you're good to go. I mean, that is 
just the self-care aspect is just something that just really hit me today. And when, when a lot of times when, when I would hear the terms, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I would hear the terms, uh, uh, don't, uh, don't hold bad thoughts in mind or bad, right, you know, wrong speech. Um, all of the, all the negative thoughts that you can hold in your mind. I always interpreted that as holding those kinds of thoughts against other people. I never interpreted it as not holding them against yourself. That's, that's the point too. And I just realized that that's, that's the whole point. If you, if you can, if you can keep, if you can take care of yourself, it's automatic yeah. that you will yeah. not do any harm in the world. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's, it's, just it's, it's the only way. It's the only way. Yep. Yeah. So thank you all. <laughs> wow. Thank you, mom. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's. I'm not even gonna comment on that. That should be left as it is because it, it was brilliant. And you don't know how hard it is to practice that kind of restraint. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, let's let, let, again. I just it was another remarkable class, um, and we'll close in the usual manner. The meta. As long as I can find it. So these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya. Metasuit. You know, I should give some credit every now and then. This is from the Amaravati uh, Monastery in London that, that, that compiled this verse. This isn't something I put up, put together. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Thank you for joining online. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. See you all.
See y'all soon. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.